This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker speaking to you on a big day in Medialand. Two of the nastiest people in the British media seem to have had their comeuppance. To discuss that and more, I'm joined by Rivka Brown. Rivka, how are you doing? Yeah, really well. Fox just caught me raving away to our intro music, so <laughs> clearly I'm having a good day. <laughs> I didn't know it was that good to rave to, but I mean, obviously, it's great intro music. Um, what we'll be talking about later, coming up, the largest untapped oil field in Britain has been approved by regulators for drilling. Conservative candidate for London Mayor has had to defend liking racist que- tweets about Sadiq Khan. And we'll be discussing the situation for Armenian refugees following a military operation by Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh region. Um, stay tuned for all of that. First story. GB News employs some truly awful people. And top of the list are Lawrence Fox and Dan Wooden, who both host regular shows on the platform. But now, both are out with the channel, suspending them, and for good reason. Last night on Wooden's show, the pair were talking about the journalist Ava Santina and caused outrage with this on-air exchange. We're past the watershed, so I can say this. Um, Show me a single self-respecting man that would like to climb into bed with that woman, ever. Ever who wasn't an incel, who wasn't a cucked little incel. That little woman has been fed, spoon-fed oppression day after day after day after day, starting with the lie of the gender uh, uh, wage gap. And she sat there and I'm going like, if I met you in a bar and that was like sentence three, chances of me just walking away are just huge. We need powerful, strong, amazing women who make great points for themselves. We don't need these sort of feminist 4.0. They're pathetic and embarrassing. Who'd want to shag that? Oh, Lawrence. Well, look, she... <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to provide a, a touch of balance from her because she did actually respond to this earlier today saying that she regretted her comments, but she didn't apologise. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so so there you go. <laughs> and she's a very beautiful woman, Lawrence. Very beautiful woman. That was Dan Wooden laughing along as Lawrence Fox commented on the shagability of a female journalist. They were discussing an exchange that Santina had with another male panellist earlier in the day on the BBC. That disgraceful conversation was brought to the attention of Santina, who shared it with this caption. Lawrence Fox just did a whole speech on GB News on why men apparently won't shag me. I feel physically sick. And quite rightly, very understandable to feel physically sick after watching that appalling exchange. Um, The condemnation came in thick and fast. And by this morning, Lawrence Fox had been suspended by the station. GB News tweeted this. GB News has formally suspended Lawrence Fox while we continue our investigation into comments he made on the channel last night. Mr. Fox's suspension is effective immediately and he has been taken off air. We will be apologising formally to Miss Evans today. Dropping Lawrence Fox shouldn't be too big a deal for GB News. His show isn't that regular. But Dan Wooten, who was laughing along to Fox's comments, had been one of their biggest draws. Nonetheless, Dan Wooten has issued his own groveling apology. He tweeted this. I want to reiterate my regret over last night's exchange with Lawrence on GB News. Having looked at the footage, I can see how inappropriate my reaction to his totally unacceptable remarks appears to be and want to be clear that I was in no way amused by these comments. 
I reacted as I did out of shock and surprise in an off-guard moment when working out how to respond as he continued to speak by searching for tweets Ava Santina had sent earlier in the day while having them read out in my ear at the same time. However, I should have intervened immediately to challenge offensive and misogynistic remarks. I apologize unreservedly for what was a very unfortunate lapse in judgment on my part under the intense pressure of a bizarre exchange. I know I should have done better. I'm devastated that I let down the team and our supportive GB News family. We seek to tackle the issue and not the person, which I intend to stress again on air tonight. Now, there are two big problems with that statement from Dan Wooten, that he was in no way amused by Fox's comments. The first is that we could see his face throughout the segment. Let's just rewatch the first 15 seconds of the exchange. We're past the watershed, so I can say this. Um, show me a single self-respecting man that would like to climb into bed with that woman ever, ever, who wasn't an incel, who wasn't a cucked little incel. That was not the face of someone who was in no way amused. In fact, it was incredibly smug, disgusting. I mean, it just oozed misogyny, just that face he was giving to the camera, responding to such horrific, disgusting misogyny, right? The second problem is that after being suspended, Lawrence Fox shared an exchange on Twitter between him and Dan Wooten from after that on-air interview. He tweeted this in response to Wooten's apology. So he says, honesty is the best policy. And then you can see a screenshot of a DM between him and Dan Wooten. Making you giggle is my weekly joy, says Lawrence Fox. Laugh emoji, laugh emoji, laugh emoji from Dan Wooten. You can imagine them freaking out in the gallery. And then Lawrence Fox says, so much fun, kiss, kiss. Now, perhaps thanks to that screenshot shared by Lawrence Fox, Wooten has also been suspended at 3.40pm. GB News tweeted, this GB News has suspended Dan Wooten following comments made on his programme by Lawrence Fox last night. This follows our decision earlier today to formally suspend Mr. Fox. We are conducting a full investigation. Rivka, I want your thoughts on this. I mean, Lawrence Fox would have been pretty easy to suspend. As I say, his show isn't that regular. He's not exactly one of GB News' stars. Dan Wooten, though, does have... I think it's the show that has the highest ratings on the channel, which is probably why they've been defending him through some of the other allegations that have been thrown at him over the past few months. Um, but this presumably was the straw that broke the, the camel's back. What do, what do you make of both their downfall? Well, obviously, like everyone watching, I'm delighted to see these two wankers get their comeuppance finally. However, this is not a story about two wankers. I mean, you said at the top of the show that two of the worst uh, offenders on GB News are Wooten and Fox. But I mean, I don't think that's true. I think some of the worst people on the channel are people like Calvin Robinson, who say things like women belong to their husbands, or Jacob Rees-Mogg, thanks to whom millions of people on, in this country can't afford to live because he's voted again and again to suppress benefits. You know, I think what we've got here is a problem of the individualization of our political discourse, where what GB News does day to day, where it degrades women, degrades trans people, degrades ethnic minorities and spouts hate as part of its mission is completely acceptable. Like it's a broadcast and, you know, Ofcom has occasionally jumped into uh, to, to say it's breached its rules. But for the most part, it goes completely um, sort of accepted. But then on the very rare occasion where its presenters make ad hominem attacks on young women journalists and say things that are just crass, then it's beyond the pale. The limits of public discourse will allow you to say 
anything you like about ethnic minorities or about trans people. But as soon as you make a bit of a nasty, I mean, it was an incredibly nasty attack on uh, a journalist, then you're out. And I think this risks, uh, in fact, you know, Wooten and Fox being seen as bad apples. It's the same thing we see in the police. Individual police officers are kicked out in order to maintain the lie that the police force as a whole, or GB News in this case as a whole, is fundamentally a respectable broadcaster. GB News is not a respectable broadcaster. It has never been a respectable broadcaster. And these two individuals leaving or being suspended does not solve that problem. A bit of a distinction there, though, between someone like Calvin Robinson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, because I know what you're saying about Calvin Rees- Calvin Robinson, sorry. I mean, he says stuff which I think journalistically many people would think is sort of beyond the pale and doesn't really have a place in mainstream media. I mean, to say Jacob Rees-Mogg shouldn't be on because he backed government policy for 13 years, I mean, it's not Ofcom's job or really anyone's job to say you can't be on the mainstream media if you back the policies of the governing party. I mean, how would you cash that out? Yeah, I think this is this is the problem. We're having a we're having a discussion, and this is um, you know it's the entire framing of the problem as whether this is um, a breach of our kind of media regulatory framework. I mean, for the for just to begin with, our media regulatory framework does not work. Ofcom is infamously toothless, and Ipso, the press regulator, the print regulator. Even more so, you know, it was set up in the wake of the Leveson inquiry, has never done any sort of uh, major inquiry into any publication, never handed out any fines, never done any libel payouts. Ofcom, much the same story. Last year, uh, found uh, GB News to be in breach of its rules because it was spouting COVID denialism. Um, Earlier this, you know, just a few weeks ago, many people will know, um, again, breached impartiality rules this time, but in neither case was any final sanction handed out. So just to begin, even within the framework of this conversation, which is around media regulation, GB News falls down. It's not, it is totally not worth the kind of even toothless regulatory framework that we have. But beyond that, I think the problem is that we're having a conversation about regulation when the conversation should be about the right wing stranglehold of our media. I know that's a conversation we have in Navarra all the time, but like the consensus against GB News is, my, is in my opinion, not strong enough. And, you know, I, I think like there's a conversation to be had here about should we or should we not legitimate them? And just, you know, I think in fact, Michael, I'd be really interested to hear what you think as someone um, who, alongside our colleague Aaron Bassani, does appear on GB News, how this whole episode has made you think about um, GB News as an outlet and its legitimacy or illeg- illegitimacy. And whether, you know, you as someone who is a stakeholder in this conversation, because you um, are part of a kind of wider extended uh, network of GB News uh, contributors are going to yourself leverage the power that you have by, let's say, withdrawing your uh, contributions or withdrawing your support by boycotting the platform, say. I'd be really interested to know what this episode has done to your views. I think that conversation or that question would make more sense if Lawrence Fox and Dan Wooten hadn't been suspended, because obviously the only thing that's changed since yesterday is that these two guys have made these two comments and laughed about it. And they have faced the consequences. Now, all the other things you said about GB News, I mean, that's applied forever. Um, And I suppose it just seems a little bit odd to me, this sort of discussion about there's a right-wing stranglehold of our media, obviously. I absolutely accept that. That's why I put a lot of time into independent left-wing media. But I don't really see how refusing to appear on right-wing media is leveraging your power. Because if I don't appear on it, it's not going to collapse. So it's got an audience. I want to speak to the audience. I want to go have that argument. I don't really see... What are the useful consequences of of refusing to go on it? I mean, what do you think about that? 
I myself am still trying to figure out this question, right? Like GB News has approached me um, in the past. I've turned it down. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that I have a blanket policy about um, appearing on their um, on their channel. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, it's not necessarily clear to me that... Uh, that appearing on GB News is just as good as not because they'll just find someone else to take uh, your place. You know, they do have a commitment. They do actually have a legal responsibility under Ofcom rules to, impart to impartiality and to having um, a uh, voice at least or like giving some due acknowledgement to opposing voices. And if all of those opposing voices re refuse to appear on them, then they'll have no more opportunity to broadcast. I mean, it would take a lot of people to, 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 to sort of back that movement. but um, But it's not... It's not inconceivable and that that would push them. You know, I don't think that GB News should have the legitimacy of a um, of a broadcaster because I don't think that what they're doing fundamentally even meets, like I said, the, the toothless regulatory framework that we have. They're clearly they clearly don't meet impartiality rules, even if they don't. Ofcom doesn't always find them in breach. You know, they should be confined to the to the fringes of our media and have uh, like not a TV channel that you can go and watch them on. The, the fact that you can turn on the telly and watch GB News is, is massively to their advantage because so much of their audience relies on linear TV. If they could no longer go on linear TV, how many of that audience, how much of that audience would migrate over to online platforms with them? It would probably kill them. So I'm, I'm not saying that you, Michael Walker, it's on you individually to, to, to walk out. But I'm saying that conceivably, progressive voices refusing to give them the impartiality sort of uh, veil that they're trying to sort of hold up, would like tearing that off would potentially be the beginning of the end for them. I've taken that argument seriously. That's I, I think GB News, the argument I don't take very seriously is about legitimacy. I don't think GB News really care about legitimacy. They care about entertaining an audience and building an audience, which I think, to be fair, they are doing fairly effectively. So I think they care about an audience. I think they care about advertisers. And I think they care about Ofcom. They don't care what people on Twitter think, right? They care about those three things. Now, with advertisers, it, left wing people going on isn't going to make a difference. That's more about issues such as this. This is probably why they had to get rid of Dan Wooden because this would be sort of a line in the sand for many advertisers. Um, with audience, I don't think it makes any difference. Um, with Ofcom, this is the only one that I think is relevant in terms of left wing people going on. Now, the reason I'm not entirely persuaded though by that argument is I think it overemphasizes the extent to which Ofcom cares that there's this sort of balance where all different political opinions are represented. So you've got someone from the far left, someone from the center left, someone from this, that, 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 that. What they want to see is that each issue you bring up, there are two sides to the argument. So they could basically get anyone to give two sides to those arguments. And so I think it makes sense to go on and have someone who is a sensible person on the left who can say something which is persuasive to GB News's audience. Because I don't think they're going to struggle to find someone to, to provide the opposing argument. I think if me and Aaron didn't go on it, that opposing argument would be presented either by someone from the Blairite centre-left or by someone with sort of cultural left-wing opinions, which I think are totally playing into their hands because they totally switch off the audience, prison abolition and the like. I think they, you know, one thing they love is for sort of like left-wing people to go on and make those wild claims, which I think are completely unpersuasive to their audience. So I think... If they are going to manage to get um, sort of a balance of opinion on the channel, which I think they will regardless, right? The things Ofcom are investigating them for aren't about balance. They're investigating them for sort of breach of journalistic practice. It's journalistic malpractice, which is really the problem. So I think it's useful if someone who is persuasive and sensible goes on. Um, and that is the feedback I get when I go on, right? You know, people watch it and say, oh, that was very well put. That's what people in our comments say when we put up those 
those YouTube videos. I think there's a reasonable disagreement to have. People have different strategies. But I also think there's a problem with where do you draw the line? You know, I've seen people sort of tweet today, oh, I, I boycott GB News in terms of going on it. And they go on Talk TV. Now, Talk TV has Mike Graham on in the morning, who is like his journalistic values are quite similar to Lawrence Fox. It has Julie Hartley Brewer on the morning who spends sort of all morning sort of railing against asylum seekers. And it has Piers Morgan on in the evening who had to leave his previous job for sort of disrespectful or offensive things he said about a woman in the public eye. So it seems to me that there's, you know, this debate to me seems to be very much about people virtue signaling on Twitter. And it seems somewhat arbitrary. And I'm much more interested in audiences at home, both when it comes to Navarra Media so this show, I care about the audience watching this at home. I don't care about people complaining about stuff on Twitter because Twitter is the tiniest little fraction of people in the world. I care about audiences. And that's why I suppose I've made the judgment that going on GB News and speaking to their audiences is a valuable thing to do. I mean, how would you respond? Yeah, I totally get that strategy. And I totally also um, agree with the point that you're making about, um, you know, if if you have a kind of purity test for mainstream media, very few outlets in this country um, or, or platforms will will pass that test. Um, so I think it's it's a really fair point. Um, I think it's it's more about how can um, how could this crisis for GB News be capitalised on by the left, not necessarily just by tweeting or by tweeting at all, but by building some momentum behind um, the kind of defunding of the platform, which stop funding. Hey, you know, um, groups like that are doing successfully, going and hitting them where it hurts in the advertising department, um, in the kind of audience buy-in. And it's, it, it's not so much about like, um, should we uh, clutch our pearls and um, do individual boycotts? So I just was interested to hear your views on that. Um, it's whether we can kind of sort of use this as a trigger for something that has more material consequences. Because at the moment, what's happening with Lawrence Fox and Dan Wooten um, actually could stand to sort of uh, entrench, retrench the idea that GB News is uh, a good and, and unbiased platform when actually, um, you know, and, and, and the fact that it's kind of jumped the gun before um, Ofcom has made any ruling, it's kind of, you know, it's trying to uh, sort of popularize this idea that it's a respectable outlet. And I think we should continue to resist that narrative, even if we tolerate, we kind of hold our noses and tolerate its presence. What's the point in holding your nose and tolerating its presence? I mean, I don't think it's a particularly respectable outlet. I think it has some shows which are respectable. And I think there are some shows where you get a decent hearing. I wouldn't go on Dan Wooten's show. I've been on it once before and I regretted it. Um, or I would never go on Lawrence Fox's show. But the reason for that isn't so much because sort of I have this moral line that I wouldn't legitimize the show. It's because I know that if you go on that show, you don't actually get a fair hearing. You don't have the chance to get your ideas across because they're just there to have sort of like the most stupid culture war debate imaginable. And there is no opportunity at all to persuade the audience. Whereas on the Jacob Rees-Mogg show, for example, he gives you quite a lot of time to talk. He listens to your answer and he responds to it. Now, I would prefer that there wasn't this multi-million pound funded right-wing platform. But there is, right? And I don't think sort of boycotting it makes much sense because I can't see the consequences being in any way significant, right? So, I mean, that's where I stand. Let's go to a couple of comments. Frederick Gallucci with a fiver. Ava is a great journalist. Fox and Wooden are slime balls and need to be hounded from the public space. They can both do one. And we've got a bit more on this story. On the content of what was actually said by Lawrence Fox, I found this a useful comment from author Rachel Connolly. Struck by the juvenile quality of the nobody wants to have sex with you, your ugly style of remarks, but more so by how common this type of sexual harassment is towards women with any kind of profile. 
Ava Santina, the subject of the misogynistic rant, has also made further comments. She was on the Jeremy Vine show this morning. I'm shocked by it, actually. I'm shocked that it went out. And I'm shocked that... Actually, do you know, this is the sort of talk that you you worry that men have about you when you're not in the room. There's always sort of a worry in the back of your mind, which is, are people actually interested in what I'm saying or what I'm doing, or are they just looking at me for physically? And I think that that clip proves that there are some men who are... I mean, in terms of the content of, of what was said on that clip, Rivka, I mean, and, and then those two responses there, do you, do you identify with that? I mean, totally. Being um, a woman, let alone a woman in um, the public eye or in the public um, space, does come with an enormous amount of self-consciousness, particularly about one's appearance. Um, and I, I, I feel almost stupid having to spell that out. Um, but yeah, I think particularly since kind of putting myself um, out there, I've realized that like, that's usually, uh, well, in my case, it's slightly different because the things that I talk about are often related to um, Jewish people and anti-Semitism. So often the kind of insults that hurt me the most are sort of more ones which accuse me of being a capo, the kind of people that would murder Jews in, in the Holocaust and so on. Um, but yeah, I definitely do still get uh, comments about my appearance. And and ultimately, I think it's like an, a, a, a kind of unpleasant truth that your appearance as a woman does affect how you're perceived and how you're treated um, in the workplace. I mean, there's pr- plenty of evidence to, to demonstrate that um, that there's kind of pretty privilege and that more attractive, skinnier, white um, women are um, are privileged and promoted over others and paid more than others, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's definitely a premium um, that comes with, with kind of looks and 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 as a woman one is always aware of um needing to capitalize on that which is which is horrendous i mean like you know even before these shows like i go i I, i'm not a person who wears makeup any of my friends will tell you this but i um every day before the show or every time i'm on the show I, i go and put my makeup on because god forbid i i didn't do that um and so yeah like it's it's something that i have been forced to become um much more aware of as a broadcast journalist particularly Ava Santina, her main job is with Politics Joe, and today on their pubcast, she had this to say. He called me multiple times throughout the night last night, and obviously I don't know him, so and I, I do know who gave him my number, and it was a woman, and I'm really disappointed in her. Mm. Sorry, I just am. I think that I should have been asked permission before that. I was getting calls up until one o'clock in the morning, voicemails, and then after that tweet from Lawrence Fox went out proving that they both had a good good old laugh about all of it yep. before public opinion had showed itself on the situation he then called again i i don't want to hear from him mm-hmm. i it, this is actually nothing to do with me no this is this is this is a network problem this is a presenter guest gallery production issue that is nothing to do with me i just so happen to be the person they're talking about yeah but I'm not in the conversation. I wasn't present for it. No. I didn't ask. I wasn't given a comment, right to reply, anything. It's not to do with me. And that's what makes me feel most sick about it. I'm just a commodity in this story. Yeah. I'm just I'm just a vehicle for content. And that's the that's the bit that makes me feel most sick. I think that was very well put. I mean, it's interesting as well, Lawrence Fox before he sort of outed Dan Wooten, kind of outed one of the producers at GB News because he had told the producer he was going to say something, something along the lines um, that he said to Dan Wooten. It wasn't quite as vicious and quite as sort of personal. I think he'd said people with this attitude is why some men don't want to date feminists or something like that. So it's still kind of gross, but not quite as 
as gross as what he ended up saying in reality. But, you know, I, I think obviously what she said there is, is, is important. I hope Ofcom do have a serious investigation of this and don't just say because you've sacked, well, suspended, by the way. Obviously, a lot is going to depend on whether they let Dan Wharton back. They suspended these two people. I should say, though, suspending these two people is is significant, especially Dan Wharton, because he is a big draw. You know, throwing the biggest guy under the bus is 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 significant, it's important. Um, interestingly, on Wharton, one of the journalists behind the byline exposés on him, which we've been um, reporting about on this show as well, um, tweeted that they have another story about him dropping this evening. So more revelations about Dan Wooten. Now, GB News management may well have been informed of whatever revelations Byline had before publication, so they had a chance to to respond to them. Can't confirm that, but it's quite plausible, which means it's possible um, that that fed into the decision to suspend Dan Wooten. Obviously, I think this is probably a case of the straw that broke the camel back. They spent a lot of political capital keeping him in post, despite all those revelations from the Byline Times. And now, they're just going to be bothered to defend him on this one. So he is suspended for now. Um, of course, when those stories come out in the Byline Times, we will keep you updated as and when. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. More news on Dan Wooden. Apparently he's deleted his crowdfunder, which was to try and sue Byline Times. Um, the target was £150,000. It got to £37,000. So I don't know if him deleting it means he's given up on the campaign or if it was a bit embarrassing that he didn't reach his target not sure what's going on there um clearly the guy is this has got some decisions to make let's move on to a very different story more than 40,000 ethnic armenians have fled nagorno-karabakh nagorno-karabakh is an enclave of azerbaijan that until last week was home to over 100,000 armenians and which until last week had de facto autonomy from the azerbaijani state Armenia and Azerbaijan are both part of the Caucasus and sit between Georgia, Russia, Turkey and Iran. Throughout most of the 20th century, both countries were part of the Soviet Union. Armenia and Azerbaijan were Soviet socialist republics and had the same status you know, as Ukraine, Georgia or Russia. But Nagorno-Karabakh was given the status of an autonomous region within the Republic of Azerbaijan. Those distinctions didn't matter too much while the Soviet Union existed, but after its collapse, a war broke out between the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, who wanted independence, and the newly created nation of Azerbaijan. That war lasted from 1992 to 1994 and ended with a Russian-backed ceasefire along these lines. The Nagorno-Karabakh Republic had its borders expanded well beyond the original boundaries of the Soviet autonomous zone. The war itself left 30,000 dead, and as a result of the conflict, 724,000 Azerbaijanis were expelled from Armenia, and 300 to 500,000 Armenians were displaced. A simmering stalemate then existed until 2020, when a second war broke out. This one went better for the Azerbaijanis. They won back control of all the territory outside of the original Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Zone, as well as a fair amount of territory inside of it. The war ended with Russian peacekeepers protecting the Lachin Corridor, which enabled aid to get to Nagorno-Karabakh from Armenia. That all changed at the start of this year, though, when Azerbaijan cut off the Lachin Corridor and blockaded the region. 
Then a week ago, Azerbaijan launched a new offensive and, unable to fight back, Armenia all but ceded the territory. It's a sequence of events that has created an almighty refugee crisis, as reported here on Sky News. This exodus has many more days to go. Thousands of ethnic Armenians leaving their ancestral homeland of Nagorno-Karabakh. Thousands more backed up, queuing to follow them. Precious little fuel and an explosion at a filling station with casualties reported to make a terrible situation even worse. Azerbaijan says nothing bad will happen to those who stay. But after their blitzkrieg offensive last week, a nine-month blockade of the region and decades of conflict and hostility, Armenians do not believe them. It was a nightmare. There are no words to describe. The village was heavily shelled. Almost no one is left in the village. In Nakhchivan, a patch of Azerbaijani land surrounded in three parts by Armenia, the red carpet was rolled out for Turkey's president, a key ally of Azerbaijani leader Ilham Aliyev. I am sure the integration process of the Armenian people living in Karabakh to Azerbaijani society will be successful. But Armenians are hardwired not to trust what either of these two men say after a century which has seen genocide, pogroms and war. And they feel that Russia too has failed them. While we have appreciated in the past their role to protect the Armenian population, it has not been clear for us why several occasions, in several occasions, Russian peacekeepers didn't take measures against Azerbaijani uh, aggression, or why Russia didn't take the corridor, Lachin Corridor, under its control where, uh, when Azerbaijan illegally blockaded that corridor. If no Armenians stay in Karabakh, this is a heavy legacy for Armenia's president, Nikol Pashinyan, and one many in the capital will not let him forget and it will mark the end of centuries of Armenian life and culture in these hills, an ethnicity wiped out, leaving for now of their own accord, but driven by fear of what they might face if they do not. One possible reason for the sudden collapse of Nagorno-Karabakh is that Russia, whose peacekeepers had initially enforced the post-2020 stalemate, have been distracted in Ukraine. I spoke earlier to Neil Hauer, a freelance journalist currently in southern Armenia, and asked him if that was the case. Since the Russia invaded Ukraine in February last year, obviously so much of its strength uh, is elsewhere. But I think more importantly, almost um, Russia's interests have shifted. It's become so much more internationally isolated and that the, the countries that it does have good links with and that allowed access to the rest of the world are that much more important. For Moscow, you know, Azerbaijan is a much more important country for it these days than Armenia is. Um, Azerbaijan provides it with uh, outside relations for for gas and, and oil. You know, they, they sell a lot of oil to Azerbaijan, and especially our, our Russia wants a link from Azerbaijan to connect over land to Turkey. And so Azerbaijan is just much, much more valuable partner to Moscow than Armenia is at this point. And for that reason, they're willing to kowtow to Azerbaijan's demand and be, and be a lot more aligned with them. So Azerbaijan now has control of the region and we're seeing tens of thousands of people leaving. I mean, should we count this as a forced migration or are people leaving by choice? I mean, it's absolutely a forced migration. You know, Azerbaijan starved these people, blockaded them for nine months, especially the last three being a total blockade with not even supplies coming through by via the Red Cross. Um, and then last week launched a military escalation 
And on top of that, Azerbaijan, uh, Il- yeah, under the regime of Ilham Aliyev, who's been in power for 20 years, um, is uh, one of the, the most co- controlled dictatorships in the world. And the state ideology is essentially anti-Armenianism, um, you know, racism, state-sponsored state sponsored, um, ethnic hatred towards Armenians. And, you know, with so many evidences of, of war crimes, you know, Azerbaijani soldiers who, be, who executed Armenians being awarded by the state, that there's no chance that, a, that an Armenian could live under Azerbaijan, under Aliyev's rule, as indeed none do right now. Uh, so for those people to remain there would be uh, essentially uh, choosing to be abducted or arbitrarily detained, um, tortured, or executed by the Azerbaijani state at some point. So it, it's, it's creating conditions in, absolutely incompatible with living there for the community. So it's very much a forced migration. You're in the region at the moment. What are people on the ground telling you? Yeah, I mean, people have said uh, to a large part um, a lot of what uh, the, the various uh, versions of what I what I just I just I just went over there is that you know Azerbaijan has starved us for nine months and they they shot and bombed us last week. Uh, there's no way that we can be uh, that, that we can possibly exist under under this re- regime under uh, living as citizens of this country be reintegrated as Azerbaijan, as Azerbaijan puts it. And that the, there's no way that they can continue to exist there in these conditions. And so, uh, I mean, I, I very much think we're going to see 99.9% of the people there leave. And the way that things are going, you know, already close to 50,000 have left in just a little, little over 72 hours. And uh, the, the line continues, to, the cars continues to stretch back for, you know, all the way to Stepanakert, 100 kilometers on the road from the Armenian border. And so I think this is just going to keep continuing. Is Armenia in a position to accept these or to absorb these tens of thousands of refugees? I mean, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. They're, they're really, they're distributing them out uh, all across the country. I mean, it was just at the central square of Goris, the, the largest city in the south where the, that is close to the border. And they're, they're putting people on buses, you know, going to all different cities and regions all across uh, Armenia where the government has either located housing for them or where there's uh, private housing that's been that's been offered for them or the yeah that there, there, there's some sort of accommodation options for them. So it's very much I mean, it's going to be a struggle, but so far things are not going, you know, things, things could be a lot more hectic for sure. So this is now a, a really large scale force migration, a humanitarian catastrophe. Was there any way that this outcome could have been stopped? Could the international community have intervened earlier to stop this happening? Absolutely. I mean, the international community could have done anything in terms of real pressure to Azerbaijan over the last nine months. You know, the entirety of Azerbaijan was everyone, the, everyone from the EU to the US, to even Russia to uh, across the spectrum condemned Azerbaijan's closure of the only road leading in there, the blockade. Uh, the, the International Court of Justice issued a ruling uh, in February demanding Azerbaijan reopen the road to unimpeded traffic which Azerbaijan just flatly ignored. Uh, and all that ever occurred for that was just, you know, continued, we we call on Azerbaijan, we urge Azerbaijan to do this, but ne- never any sanctions, you know, never any any um, downgrade in ties, never any uh, economic penalties for, for Azerbaijan, um, no tangible action whatsoever. And so it's little wonder that the that Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, read this as a, a, a green light that, you know, if I go to the next step, if I just uh, launch a, a unilateral military offensive against these people and 
drive them out, that there's not going to be much response to that either. And we're still at that stage now. You know, there still have not been any consequences to Azerbaijan from doing this. You know, there's been statements and people saying we and statements saying we feel we our sympathies with the Karabakh Armenians and we call on Azerbaijan to grant them rights. But the reality is these people are refugees now and there's been no consequences to to Azerbaijan one step of the way. Let's go straight on to our next story. Regulators have approved plans for the controversial Rosebank oil field. The move permits the Norwegian state energy company Equinor and the British Ithaca Energy to start developing and drilling the biggest untapped oil field in the UK. And to top it all off, they'll get £500 million in government subsidies for their trouble. The Rosebank site is 80 miles west of Shetland and is thought to contain up to 300 million barrels worth of oil. When burned, they'll produce more than the combined emissions of around 90 of the world's lowest emitting countries. The move has infuriated climate groups that have warned for years against the destruction Rosebank would unleash. And on BBC Politics Live, Canadian writer and activist Naomi Klein debated the issue with Labour and Tory MPs. I think it's a horrific decision. I I don't think that the UK is unique in approving new fossil fuel infrastructure um, at the very moment when we need a just transition to the next economy in the face of the accelerating climate crisis. Do we remember summer? I'm here from Canada on book tour and my country is still partially on fire. And it's just extraordinary that this oil field, which is, it's not like some small insignificant thing. This oil field represents, by one statistic, the combined emissions of the 28 lowest emitting countries. Um, So this is a very big deal. It's the exact opposite direction. It's an act of environmental vandalism. This transitional process requires some necessary evils. And those necessary evils do have some economic upsides, but they are necessary to get through that transition. And this is simply about pragmatism. It's not, you can't afford to be ideological. You're going in the opposite direction. So yes, but but there is obviously a requirement for some of this in that transitional process. And I would rather it came from the UK rather than is is imported from other places. Because I've heard the investor say it's going on the open market and most of it will go to Europe. So this isn't even an energy security. Well, I think I think it, it, no one's suggesting that it is going to be wholly ring-fenced for the UK market because that's right. not how these markets work. But it is a part of uh, a transitional thing. And of course, it's a part of the UK's energy security conversation, which we know is important post-Ukraine and all the rest. Is it the right decision, Siobhan, to grant a license for more fossil fuels? I think right at this moment, yes, because transition means that you have to have the things in place uh, to allow for other sorts of energy. If we want to keep the lights on and the heating on in our homes until we get to net zero, we've got to have a transition period. And while the government always seems to want to produce headlines, there are very few plans to make sure we maximise other forms of energy. Um, and I think it is really important that we aren't, we're going to be reliant on gas for some time. Yeah. And I think it's important that we have it, um, in the UK rather than importing it right. from other countries in diesel fueled ships. Uh, and that is the reality. It's not entirely unreasonable, the argument they make. One of the reasons I say this is because I, I did a podcast interview the other day um, on China's transition. And one of the things that the Chinese state is doing is while they're sort of massively investing in renewable energy, they're also building coal power plants. Now, they shouldn't be building coal power plants, but people keep looking at this and it's completely insane. Why are they doing that? And the reason they are is because they're sort of valuing energy security over and above 
everything else, right? So they're building out loads of renewable capacity, but they're saying at the same time, we need to make sure that we don't have power cuts between now and then. I think Xi Jinping has this sort of line, we're going to build the new before collapsing the old, whatever. And and so they they want to make sure that the power is there before or at the same time as they do the transition. That's essentially the argument which is being made by those two politicians. The problem, as Naomi Klein said, is that this is just oil and gas that's going to go on the open global market, right? This isn't in any way going to give us more energy security because it's been extracted by private companies. They're going to sell it for a profit on the open market. So what we're really doing is contributing to a fall in the overall price of oil and gas, which just disincentivizes people from from moving to renewables. So it's not like this is this sort of excellent plan to make sure that we have energy security while we're moving to a green economy. It's just pure allowing profit makers to to pump out more oil and gas, which brings down the price of it and, and slows down the green transition. Naomi Klein was allowed another response to this story. Let's take a look. This is a new infrastructure project. So if you're building new infrastructure project, all of it takes time. It's not turning on the lights for anybody tomorrow. All of this is, the reason why we have to focus on new infrastructure is that when investors make these decisions, it only pays off. These are multi-billion dollar investments. It only pays off if it stays in production for decades into the future, which is why this is not the transition we need. Yes, good point, right? This is only gonna come on tap decades in the future. So it's not necessarily a question about the transition. Um, I think also a lot of money is going to be spent on this, right? If we spent that money instead on on um, insulating homes, for example, that would also be a good strategy. I suppose, again, you could make a similar, you know, so in China, right, they've got these, I'm, I'm not saying we should be like China, but it's an interesting case, boys, just because it's a country I've been sort of reading a lot about when it comes to a green transition. And I think people can be a little bit, you know, parochial when we talk about these things. What they've done is had an incredibly ambitious green transition plus investment in some fossil fuels to tie them over. We're doing the investment in the fossil fuels. We aren't doing the investment in the green transition, right? The government is saying, oh, we can't really be bothered now. You know, they're slowing it all down. So if you're going full steam ahead on both, you know, I'd have a little bit more sympathy for it. But at the moment, we seem to be saying, well, we're going to slow down on all the green stuff and we're going to dig for more gas and oil. On a practical level, we should say it's not a done deal with Rosebank. It almost it's almost certain that climate groups will launch legal action against the Rosebank decision. And that's exactly what happened with the planned new coal mine in Cumbria. Meanwhile, climate activists have pledged not to give up the fight, suggesting we may see further waves of protest and even direct action. Um, Rivka, what do you make of this decision? What did you make of that exchange on Politics Live? Well, it's pretty shocking, isn't it, that uh, a Canadian journalist should be the one voice of reason amidst both of our main political parties, one of which is supposed to be in opposition um, to this major decision, which is going to, you know, if we are to trust climate experts, drive us over 1.5 uh, degrees of global heating. You know, they have said just yesterday, these climate experts, that if we continue to explore for new oil and gas, we are going to smash through the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degrees uh, target. And that's going to make every country in the world less bearable to live in. We're going to have hurricanes. We're going to have flooding. We're going to have fires. We're going to have heat waves like we've seen in the UK already. You know, I was in Finland this summer. I talked about it yesterday. There are now tropical mosquitoes in Finland. Do you think that's normal? Like, I think what's really missing from a lot of this debate is a long-term thinking. You know, even, even the as, as questionable as the arguments against Rosebank might be in the short term, you know, it's not going to make our energy bills cheaper. It's not going to, uh, because 
because it's not even going to come online in, in, until the next few years. It's all going to be exported, 80% of it, and shipped back to the UK on the uh, global markets anyway. Um, and, and, and so it's a total fallacy. The only people it's going to enrich are people, you know, Norwegian energy companies like Equinor or the British uh, company that's extracting it with them, Ithaca Energy, whose shares, by the way, went up 8% just today in the London Stock Exchange. You know, the only person whose energy bills are getting cheaper is the CEO of Ithaca Energy. Um, but I think what we have to remember is even if that was true, even if in the short term our energy bills did get cheaper as a result of uh, bringing these 300 million barrels of oil um, into the global markets, which, by the way, I think actually Naomi's uh, stat may have been an underestimate. I've seen up to 90 countries worth of carbon emissions um, being compared to that amount of um, oil being burnt. Um, even if that was true, it made things cheaper. Cheaper for what? <laughs> if we continue to, to to burn energy, we're gonna we're gonna have cheaper energy, and then we're gonna fall off a cliff, and we're gonna and our homes are gonna be flooded. There's no, not gonna be any more light switches to turn on and off. So I don't really understand this kind of short term thinking that like the, the 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 cost of living crisis. We're sort of like thinking of the short term costs as far more important than the long term costs. I, there's an economic term for this, but I'm not sufficiently well schooled in economics to, to to remember it. What's the term? Do you know, Michael? The term for thinking about the short term gain is more important than the long-term ones. But I mean, this is an existential crisis that we're facing if we continue to explore for new oil and gas. There's no debate to be had. If we keep doing it, we're going off a cliff. Like, we need to find alternatives. And the important thing is, the alternatives are there. Fossil fuels, by nature, are getting more expensive. They're going to get less and less and less. And as, as supply decreases, the prices will go up. It's just inevitable. We can say that we're going to drill for new oil and gas, but even extracting from Rosebank is going to be tremendously different. It's a mile deep, the North Sea, and the, the, the waves are 50, 60 meters high. It's not going to be a simple task, even, even doing the development, which hasn't yet been done to extract it. You know, setting up a solar farm, a wind farm, um, green um, sort of measures are so much simpler and, and don't have the and have the benefit of actually getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, solar um, energy has got something like 30 to 40 percent cheaper than climate experts expected it to get in the in the last year. It's it's tumbling the cost of investing in green energy. So, you know, the idea that that green is expensive and that's the necessary and um, that's the sacrifice we're going to have to make um, versus the easy option of extracting oil from the North Sea is like a total fallacy and we need to we need to um, clarify that let's go to our final story susan hall is the conservative candidate for london mayor she's come under fire for liking a string of racist and islamophobic tweets some of which are aimed at current mayor sadiq khan and this has now all been put to her on lbc where nick ferrari confronted her with those tweets Katie Hopkins called the London mayor, quotes our nipple height mayor of londinistan mm. and you replied thank you katie Mm. I, I, I can't remember doing that. Probably because I'm so... You can't fast. remember doing that? No, of course not. The Nick, I, I tweet, or I used to, Do you remember liking time. a tweet that had the language, it's never too late to get London back with a picture of Enoch Powell? Yes, and I've explained that. It's, it's never too late, which is what I'm saying to you. It is not too late to make London better again. We've got traffic jams left, right and centre. We've got Do the ULES expansion. Are you a there fan are, of Enoch Powell? No, of course not. But what, why, why? I don't understand. There was a picture of him 
and you liked that tweet. I know. If you're a if you're a serial tweeter, you tend to go through liking all sorts of things, and you sometimes read things and don't see. If anybody is offended, then obviously I would apologise. But going, you back, don't think you can't see why people would be offended. With I, that. You I say, can you say now. If been, anyone is yeah. offended, well, it, I have to explain to you the offence. No, because because it wasn't it it wasn't intended, and 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 this is the thing. If anybody, when you was, called Gemma Collins a stupid fat blonde woman, was that intended? I was asking a question to Twitter as to who who is this person, and yeah, I mean I've apologised for that as well. I mean they will, people will throw these tweets at me, and I accept it. And if I've offended anybody, I apologise. You but keep go, saying if as if you can't realise that there is offence, Susan Hall. Be, because calling I'm sorry to say it again, calling someone a stupid fat blonde woman, liking a picture of Enoch Powell, talking about the mayor. I apologise again, a nipple height mayor. You seem surprised people are offended. Some people are and some people aren't. Those that are offended, um, I'm, I didn't intend oh. to cause any offence at all. But going to, back to Lauren... To the broader have... question, can you represent Muslims? Can you represent women? Can you represent people? Susan Hall. Yes, of course I can. Explain and going to Lauren how. And going back to Lauren, yes, of course please. we've got an incredible um, Muslim community. We really do. Um, and uh, if they, if they, I go back to saying if... To whoever was offended, I most sincerely apologise. I spent a lot of time in mosques, etc., um, because in London we're very, very lucky. We've got a, a really good multicultural uh, community out there, and it, it brings extra depth to London. Lauren, quick response from you before we move on. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not quite convinced. I think anyone in London from any minority group should be worried. I'm not quite convinced either. The idea that if, if someone has shared uh, a tweet that says it's not too late to save London with a picture of Enoch Powell, they're not talking about ULES. They're not talking about low traffic zones or traffic jams. Right? They're, they're talking about something else. They're talking about something very, very racist. Personally, I thought it was hilarious, but I think the FT, it was it was funny, I was reading an interview with a profile even of Susan Hall um, in the FT this morning where she describes herself as like Marmite, um, which I think is like the exact opposite of what I think most people would describe Susan Hall as, which is, I have no idea who this woman is, who the fuck is Susan Hall? Like, no one has an opinion on Susan Hall. And I think this is the point, actually. Susan Hall, as we've seen just there, is a fumbling, uncharismatic, gaff-prone, not media-polished. Like, she was just plucked out of obscurity as a conservative, you know, relatively unknown conservative London Assembly member and uh, leader of Harrow Council, I believe. Um, and she basically only won this election because the her opponent was done for um, sexual assault or groping someone, I think. Um, and so, you know, She's just been thrust into the spotlight and she has no idea what to do. She's not been media trained. She doesn't realise that people can see when you like their tweets. Um, and so she's sort of just like fumbling into the light. I think what's what's actually really important about this, though, is that the polling shows that she's only three points behind uh, Sadiq Khan, who's actually one of the best known politicians in this country um, and is one of the most you know popular Labour politicians. Um, but so I think what this tells us is something really important, which is that Susan Hall is not a person. Uh, no, Susan Hall, I'm not suggesting that Susan Hall is a lizard, but I am suggesting that Susan Hall is not a person. She's an extraordinarily blank canvas on which to paint in primary colours the kind of extreme, most extreme version of the Tory right. You know, 
climate deniers, um, right wing kind of racists, Islamophobes, you know, all of this stuff. She's just there to kind of project all of this onto and it's working quite well. And I think what this shows is that you don't need um, a sort of, it's not necessarily a personality contest. It doesn't need to be, you know, a fumbling Boris Johnson um, kind of making a sort of semi-celebrity of himself dangling from a zip wire or whatever he did um, as London mayor. Um, and, and by the way, you know, not that I would ever say that Boris Johnson is a uh, progressive of any stripe, but he, you know, Susan Hall does make him look like Mahatma Gandhi. He is the guy who introduced Ulez and she is now, you know, the most uh, sort of vicious opponent of it. You know, he would go to London Pride. You know, he also said some horrific stuff about gay people, but he went to Pride, whereas she's sort of saying that we need to um, fight the culture war and stop uh, police officers from going to Pride. I mean, I agree with her, not for the reasons that um, she's sort of saying, but I think, you know, we need to really take Susan Hall seriously. Not Susan Hall the person, but Susan Hall the idea, uh, because the ideas that she's kind of, um, yeah, projecting and giving voice to are gaining a lot of traction. And that's because of something we've talked about previously on this show, which is the growth, the the, the quiet but steady growth of conspiracy theories, including um, things like 15-minute cities, which is t very tied in to the um, anti-ULES protests. And so we need to actually look at the kind of movement that's, that's kind of um, almost... Uh, projecting, you know, shooting Susan Hall out of a cannon and into uh, City Hall <laughs> and think less about Susan Hall, the individual. I mean, hilarious as that clip was, Michael. I just, basically what I'm trying to say is this isn't about Susan Hall. This is about the ideas she represents. Yeah, and you mentioned the polling there. That probably is what's most worrying about this. Let's get up the, the latest polling for the London mayoral race. It's by JL Partners. Um, suggests that Hall is on 32%, Sadiq Khan is on 35%. Um, I do think this poll seems to be underestimating the Greens. I can't imagine they're only on 5% in London. But I suppose whatever you make of this, is going to be fairly close, right? Also, there's a suggestion that third place, Reform UK, they might even drop out. This person is, is, is right-wing enough that I'm sure they could ally with her. And I suppose, you know, this shows a number of things, right? I think, one, Sadiq Khan is not extraordinarily popular. Famous, not extraordinarily popular. Um, that looks quite like a, a Labour core vote. And two, I mean... If Susan Hall ends up winning on sort of 32% or something like this, that is going to be a demonstration of the, the complete moral bankruptcy sorry, of first-past-the-post. So we talked about this on this show before. This is going to be the first election to um, the London mayor where there isn't second-choice voting. So you only get one vote. And that means that you can win um, on, say, 32% of the vote if the alternative is, is massively split. So if, if the left-wing vote is split between Labour and the Greens, for example, then you could get the Tories coming through. Now, I, the reason I like second preference voting and hate sort of first-past-the-post is because it means that you get this, this sort of moral blackmail of all the Green voters saying, you have to vote Labour, otherwise you're going to let the Tories in. But I mean, you know, it's, it, it's blackmail in some sense. It's also somewhat true, right? So it's really undemocratic to do things like this. I suppose the only silver lining, if Susan Hall were to win on 32% of the vote, Labour would likely have just entered Westminster and potentially that would be sort of a good reason for them to, to say, well, we're going to bring back second preference voting. I suppose the argument against that is second preference voting actually does allow for rivals to the Labour Party to rise up. So they might not have that much interest um, in bringing it back. Um, I think Labour find it quite handy that they get to, to, to morally blackmail 
Green voters to say vote for us or let the Tories in because it means they don't have to be particularly ambitious when it comes to what they're pledging to do. Rivka, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure. Fiery at times. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that we sort of um, aired our disagreements and I hope we can do so in a collegial way going forward. Yeah, here's to more on-air disagreements. Um, I do always enjoy them. Thank you everyone for watching this evening. I hope you do too. Um, this show will be back tomorrow for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.